Hey guys, welcome to the show today. Thank you for tuning in. We have a special episode from a live event I did with uh, Pastor Tim Thompson from 412 Church in Murrieta, California that we wanted to air for you. Really fun, exciting, passionate, and energetic conversation. Pastor Tim is a real gift to the country and to Southern California and has been contending for life, for liberty, for the unborn for a long time. And so we discuss how and why men should stand for life, the very dark side of Dr. Fauci, uh, why social reformers have always used graphic imagery to reform the culture, a strong call to pastors to wake up and engage the culture of death, why abortion is a sacrament to the left, and lastly, a passionate call to arms for every Christian to engage in ending abortion at a propitious moment in our country where life and liberty are eroding at a rate we've never seen before. This is an important message and conversation at an important time to listen to and to share with those in your life who you would like to see on the front lines engaged in ending abortion. Buckle up. <laughs> Our guest this evening is one of our country's youngest thought leaders on the issue of abortion. Uh, and he has been speaking publicly on behalf of the unborn children since the age of 19. He has spoken across the U.S. educating and equipping pro-life advocates to be a gracious and persuasive voice for unborn children. Please welcome out our guest this evening, who my friend Rob McCoy calls the Charlie Kirk on the issue of abortion, Seth Gruber. <laughs> Seth, glad to have you out. Thanks, brother. Um, really, really thankful that you made the trek all the way here to talk with us tonight. And you started this whole conversation at age 19. So how did you get, and we have a lot of young people in the audience tonight that can join in what you do. So how did you get started at such a young age? Yeah, yeah, praise God. Yeah, it was actually before that. So I went to Whittier High School, which is uh, Nixon's alma mater. And I was homeschooled through eighth grade. Then I went to public high school. I wanted to comp uh, compete in athletics. And so at the time, you know, that was the best opportunity for that. But I was raised in a pro-life family. My mother was the director of a pregnancy resource center, which we have one represented here tonight, in Azusa, California, in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And she was directing that clinic while pregnant with me, uh, the firstborn. So I like to say I'm, I'm a fetal pro-life activist. I've been uh, swimming in these waters for a long time, quite literally. And so raised doing the Walk for Life every year in Whittier, California, where I grew up, in LA County. But it wasn't until my senior year of high school when I had to pick a senior project. And you had to do this to graduate. You had to pick a topic, you had to do a research paper, you had to do volunteer hours, somewhere that associated with your topic selection. And then you had to give a presentation before sort of a board of teachers at the end of the year in order to graduate. And so I was thinking something like, oh, the positive benefits of athletics, you know, something that was just really easy, something I cared about. But I, at 18 years old as a senior in high school, I felt really convicted that I didn't really have an articulate response to the pro-choice friends in my life, most of whom were not Christians, as to why I was pro-life, why I believe everyone should be pro-life. And we'll talk about a little more of this tonight, but I just kind of had your pat, like, Jesus, like, you know, homeschool, Sunday school answer, which is like, well, Psalm 139 says I'm knit together in my mother's womb. It's like, well, praise God, that's beautiful truth, amen. But what does that mean to the secular humanist? Right? What does that mean to the atheist? Well, nothing. They don't believe the word of God is authoritative. So I felt really convicted by that. And so I picked the issue of abortion as my senior project at 18 years old at Whittier High School. I volunteered at a pro, at a pre, or not a pregnancy center, but rather a pro-life organization in Orange County. And the first thing they had me do, Pastor Tim, was to scan 300 images of first trimester aborted children. 
on a, on a high-quality scanner, categorize them in their database, and they use these for their educational projects. Um, and we can dive into that conversation if you want. A lot of pro-lifers say you shouldn't show graphic imagery of abortion. My only question is, why have you never opposed horrific imagery of slavery, the Holocaust, and basically every genocide in human history? It's only abortion that we're told, don't use graphic imagery of abortion. But you know, what happens in darkness stays in darkness. And Ephesians 5.11 says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. That doesn't mean be a jerk. Don't go around doing it gratuitously. But it right. changes hearts. It changes minds and it saves lives. And so I was exposed to this and that was really the turning point of my life. I started the pro-life club at Westmont College where I went in Santa Barbara and then I started speaking full-time when I graduated in 2014. So that's the crash course. All right. Um, you, you talk about the graphic images. Um, I, I am of the mindset that it's important for people to understand the reality of what's taking place in the abortion industry. And I call it an industry because it's a, it's, it, it's, become this money-making scheme in many ways. And we also, as believers, we have to understand that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Right. We know this is a spiritual battle we are in. It's a very wicked one. Um, and so we're going to talk about the, the spiritual side of it, but also the physical side of it. You know, the spiritual side we as believers see, the, the secular humanists, yeah. they don't see that, but, but both of them exist yep. simultaneously. Um, but you have a video you've given us to show. Um, you have a warning before we show it. And I think it's important for us to see it before we move on in the discussion because it really paints a picture. Yeah. So you want to give your, your warning before, uh, before we show this video? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Thank you, um, Pastor Tim. Really appreciate your courage. And, and boy, do you guys have a brave pastor here. I mean, he's just incredible. And... And is, is really inspired so many other pastors to stand, you know, and that's why I, I want to I orient myself and surround myself with, with pastors with spines, with pastors who believe in a comprehensive Christianity, not this truncated, compartmentalized Christianity, which preaches, apply your faith in every sphere except the political. It's like, but that's what destroys and builds up countries. Like, why wouldn't you have God-fearing men and women there? And you've been setting that example, example for a long, long time. The reason I say that, besides to compliment you and because, it, you know, we, we need to encourage our leaders and our shepherds, is that most pastors, far from not giving me a chance to share on this issue from the pulpit, would never even allow me to show what God has to look at a million times a year, 2,700 times a day in this country. And so we really play into the enemy's hands. He's a liar and a murderer, and he thrives in darkness. And scripture says, I believe it's in 1 John, it says to bring these things into the light, and then you will have fellowship with one another, and the, and the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So we can't really have peace. We can't have true fellowship as long as we are playing into the enemy's hands and the culture of death's hands by helping hide the reality of what they do to little children, little image bearers right. of God, eternal souls who have never existed before and will never exist again. When that was all us. We're all former fetuses. You know, newsflash, that's where we all came from. You know, we're all former womb dwellers, and our mothers didn't kill us, you know? So I, I always say every pro-choicer is very grateful that their mother, mother wasn't pro-choice. Right. And that's why Reagan once said, you know, I've noticed everyone who's for abortion has already been born. And so we didn't endure the procedure that rips the limbs off of one million babies a year. But if the American public was forced to look at it every day, can you imagine if this was on billboards or on CNN? Not that Chris Cuomo would ever play an abortion victim photography clip on his show. But if, if the American public had to look at what happens to preborn children in an abortion, the entire narrative would change. And so in order to sort of just set, set up this clip, we just want to warn you beforehand, it is graphic and it is disturbing. It's only one minute long. But if you do have kids in here tonight, or maybe junior hires, 
Um, I want to give you the opportunity to step out with them if you'd like. Pastor Tim and I didn't want anyone to feel tricked or manipulated into watching something they would have preferred to opt out of. Uh, my personal opinion, Pastor Tim, is the high schoolers can totally handle it. But again, if, if their parents are here, you know, that's the parents' decision. So I want to give you guys the chance to do that. It's a minute long, and I put instrumental music over the video, so you won't even hear anything that you don't want to hear if you choose to avert your gaze, close your eyes, or just stare down at your feet. When the music starts, you can close your eyes. When it stops, you can open your eyes, and you would have opted out of the entire presentation, okay? So now no one can get mad at me or come up with me afterwards and say, I can't believe you showed that. But it's, it's important to... They'll get mad at to, me. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, and then I'll peace out. <laughs> It's important to open the casket on abortion because abortion is actually the most hidden injustice in world history. There's never been an injustice that's more been successfully hidden from the eyes of the public. Mm -hmm. And so in order to prick the collective conscience of the culture, we have to show them what they're tolerating or in many cases celebrating is reproductive justice. That's the new euphemism, by the right. way. So without any further ado, let's play the short video clip. That is, uh, obviously, it's hard to watch. Um, and it just, it sheds light on it. You know, the, like you said, the Bible says not to even speak of these things, rather expose them. And this needs to be exposed. It needs to be exposed for what it is. It is wicked. It is murder. It is, it is the worship of a pagan god. What, no matter how they want to package it up, this is what Satan does, is he packages things up in a way that seems palatable and presents it as though it's good, as though this is science, it's reproductive health. This, there's nothing healthy about that. Nothing healthy about it. And Satan's packaged it up in a way where many people in our society thinks that this is okay and that it's a right. We have a right to do this. We don't have a right. We have no right to do this. And Pastor Tim, this is why the left needs euphemisms. They require euphemisms. Why? Because the great conservative pro-life consolation is that reality tends to be self-evident. Reality always reasserts itself in the end. Our founders had some self-evident truths, right? right. <laughs> that we're, we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. That among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Look, they put life first. I mean, some truths really are self-evident. And this is why, despite my frustration with the culture of death, I'm encouraged that the train wreck and a hundred speed uh, train, uh, train wreck that our country is on right now won't last forever because reality is just too self-evident. Reality always returns and slaps you in the face. 
and demands entrance back into your home, back into your country, back into your schools, because the truth can only be suppressed for so long. And so when you show something like that, in one minute, you implode, explode, destroy an entire movement's propaganda, language, and euphemism in one clip. You can't look at that and say, oh yeah, reproductive justice, right? My body, my choice. Well, if, if it's your, just your body, then why isn't every woman dead after an abortion? Because it's not your body. The body in your body is not your body. That's not the woman's body who got the abortion on the table. That's her little baby who she paid uh, a physician, a, 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 a demon, right? Masquerading as a physician or a doctor to kill. And so that's why it's so important for us to see. And I want to tell you guys just a brief story before we, we move on. I'm sure Pastor Tim and I could talk for hours. But do you guys know the story of Emmett Till? So Emmett Till was a young boy living in Honey, actually visiting in Honey, Mississippi with his family pre-civil um, rights era. And he was bragging to his friends that he had a white girlfriend back at home and they didn't believe him. So they said, oh yeah, go into that grocery store and go flirt with the white clerk behind the counter. So he took him up on the dairy, went in there, and according to accounts, he catcalled, you know, <laughs> or said, hey, thanks, babe, or something like this, right? Well, a couple days later, her husband and some of his friends found Emmett Till in his family's home where he was visiting in Honey, Mississippi, drug him out of the house, drug him through the streets, beat the living pulp out of him until his face looked like a deflated football, wrapped twine around his neck, and threw him into the Mississippi River. Officers found his body days later, and they didn't know who they had found. And if you look at photos of Emmett Till, he, his face really does look like some type of deflated basketball. It's completely unrecognizable. His face was completely flattened. So once they found out that it was Emmett Till and brought his body back to his mother, his mother shocked the country by requesting an open casket funeral. And do you know what woke pastors told her? That's too graphic. Don't disrespect your little boy. Like many woke pastors today tell me that I'm disrespecting unborn children who have been aborted by showing graphic imagery. And do you know what Emmett Till's mother's response was? What's that? I want the world to see what they did to my little boy. The published photo of Emmett Till's mutilated face was published in newspapers all across this country. You say racism got a face that day, and it was an ugly, ugly face. And the country was forced to reconcile with that which they supported or celebrated. Well, later, Rosa Parks, when asked about her experience refusing to walk to the back of the bus, said that in that moment she was thinking of Emmett Till. Many historians believe, Pastor Tim, that it wasn't the actions of Rosa Parks that provided the spark to the civil rights movement, but rather it was the published photo of Emmett Till's mutilated body in newspapers all across the country that provided the spark to the civil rights movement. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And when we as Christians or pro-lifers help hide this reality from the American public, the abortion industry, the Democratic Party, and the culture of death have a field day. And they're very excited that we're, we're helping them with their greatest goal, which is to suppress and hide the reality of what they do. Yeah, in many ways, unfortunately, the church has been complicit in that suppression of the truth. Rather, rather than exposing it yep. like we're supposed to, um, it's... It's an issue that doesn't get discussed. I've talked to a lot of pastors about this and asked, why don't you talk about this? I mean, you should talk about this 
from the pulpit. And, and one of the, the number one responses I get, maybe you've heard this, is I don't want to possibly offend a woman that's in my congregation that may have had an abortion. I don't want to offend her. I don't want her to feel bad. And my response to that is you don't have to try to make her feel bad or worry about making her feel bad. She already does. Yeah. She's already hurting. She's already struggling. What she needs to hear is that is not a sin that God cannot forgive. That Jesus, just like he died for every single one of my sins and your sins and any of our sins, Jesus was the only one who's ever been able to live a life of perfection. Right. He's the only one who could have ever been that, that perfect sacrifice, shedding his blood, and it's by right. his blood that is shed that we have the remission of sin. That's right. That's what they need to hear. That's right. That, that there is life after that sin. That's right. And that they have life everlasting because of what a holy God yeah. did for them. Well, you, but, now, but, now you just got me on, on, on my, my soapbox on pastors and, yeah. and, and shepherds, um, most of whom are not shepherds at all, um, most of whom are actually opening up the gates to the flock and allowing wolves to come in and attack them right. because they won't be a shepherd. Mm -hmm. They won't step up and defend the least among us. Right. And who is more least? Who is more vulnerable? Who is more voiceless? Who is more defenseless right. than a preborn child of which your savior once was, brothers and sisters? God enters human history in a womb that he once knit together to redeem mankind from their sins. We are former fetuses. That's when we began. There's not a fetus fairy that flying around sprinkling magical personhood conferring fairy dust on the child as it exits the birth canal during childbirth. You don't just become human. You don't ob obtain human personhood value. You are human from the moment of conception. It's just a matter of degree of growth. We all began at that moment. Christ becomes human at the moment of conception. That's when we all began. And I can't think of a more voiceless or defenseless image bearer of God in our midst. And the unborn is the only class of victims that it's legal to kill. I challenge you to, to name to me one class of individuals in America that it's legal to kill for no reason. Innocent human beings, you can just kill them. The unborn's the only one. And we have concentration camps. We have death camps in our cities, in our counties, in our states, and in our country that profit off of killing these children. Where are the shepherds? Where are the pastors? Right. Well, the answer, unfortunately, Pastor Tim, is that they are the moral equivalent of the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you remember this parable, right? A lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's an important question, by the way. Sure. How do I get to heaven? <laughs> and then Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Boom. Nails it, right? And what does Christ tell him? You have answered correctly. By the way, it's really nice when God tells you your theology is correct. <laughs> you have answered correctly. He's like, oh, he's, he's high on his horse. He's feeling great, right? Oh, I've got my MDiv, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do this and you will live. And then what does Luke's gospel tell us? And he, desiring to justify himself, said, and who is my neighbor? Wait, you just summarized all the law and the prophets to hang on two commandments in a stroke of theological brilliance. But you don't know who your neighbor is? Hey, I thought you were smart. I thought you knew your Bible. Now you can't even answer the question, who is your neighbor? See, the lawyer knew that every human being was his neighbor. What he was trying to do was create a category of neighbor and non-neighbor in order to shirk himself of his responsibility of loving the neighbors that he didn't want to, the ones that were inconvenient to love. So in response to the question, how do I get to heaven and who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. A bleeding victim is mugged, robbed, left for dead. Luke's gospel says half dead on the side of the road. 
And two pastors walk by. Praise God, right? The shepherds are here. They're here to protect the flock. Oh, wait. Luke's gospel says they walked by on the other side of the road. They went out of their way not to sacrifice and love a bleeding victim. They went out of their way to avoid their spiritual obligation as shepherds to love the least among us who had been targeted by injustice and were half dead on the side of the road. It was the good Samaritan, the bleeding victim's natural enemy, because Jews and Samaritans hated one another, who when he saw the bleeding victim... He stopped what he was doing. He poured on oil and wine. He put bandages on his wounds. He put him on his own donkey so he had to walk. He took him to the nearest inn. He nursed him back to health. Then he told the innkeeper, I have to go now. I'm a busy man. But when I come back, I'm going to cut you a check. I'm going to pay you for any other costs that accumulated for you in caring for this bleeding victim while I was gone. Radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money to love a bleeding neighbor. How much more accountable and responsible are pastors and Christians, Pastor Tim, in America? Because unlike the Good Samaritan, we know when and where these bleeding victims are created. The Good Samaritan just came alongside and saw a dude on the side of the road, right? right? He didn't know when and where it was going to happen. We know where, we have the addresses of the death camps where little image bearers of God are ripped limb from limb, and where are the pastors? Where are the Christians? Nowhere. They're nowhere to be found. And we know at what time and what days of the week they kill babies. So we have more responsibility to end this because we can plan ahead. We can show up. We can be a witness for the unborn children and Christ. And yet I think most Americans, most Christians, and most pastors today are either the lawyer who create categories of neighbor and non-neighbor and they say they're pro-life. Don't worry, Pastor Tim. They give a, a table to the Pregnancy Resource Center once a year, and they make a one-time donation to the local Pregnancy Resource Center, and they check their pro-life checkbox. Woohoo! I'm done. I'm the super pro-life church. Really? W- would you accept that level of resistance to the culture of death in Germany in 1940? No, they wouldn't. They would never accept a one-time donation to the confessing church that Bonhoeffer helped found. They would be saying, we need to be outside of the death camps. And we know when and where they are, and the church is not anywhere. So we are either creating categories of neighbor and non-neighbor to avoid engaging, or we're like the Levite and the priest who espouse anti-street-mugging beliefs or pro-life beliefs. But when we have a chance to save bleeding neighbors, we walk by on the other side of the road. That's the question for us. That's the question for shepherds. That's the question for the church. Will we know that it's there and walk by on the other side of the road, or will we engage and end this genocide? Yeah. Um... I wish the answer is we would engage. I really do. Um, it, it's sad, though, to see for so many years this being avoided, but walking on the other side of the road. Um, it's interesting that you're, you're taking such a lead on this, um, not just in California, but across the nation. And as you've taken the lead, I have to imagine that you've heard this a time or two. Why are you so involved? You're a man you shouldn't have a say. Right, Because I want all of us men to know why should we have a say? Why should we be, as men, engaged in this topic where when we live in a culture that, that has embraced modern feminism and said men shouldn't even have a say in this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that? Well, firstly, I'm incredibly offended that you would assume my gender. Um, I, I actually identify as a, uh, as a uterus holder. 
Um, and so, you know, I'm actually perfectly biologically entitled to espouse my female beliefs on the issue of abortion. Um, and then, of course, you know, the radical left as a pro-abortion advocate says, you know, oh, come on, you're just saying that. Well, yeah, I mean, gender's fluid. There's no such thing as men or women. So today I identify as a woman for the purpose of making you shut up when I speak out against abortion. Um, and so, though, I mean, it's so easy to just flip the script on them. Um, and it's, I mean, it's tragic at the same time, but that's how strange the culture of death is. I mean, secular progressivism really does rot the brain. Um, and, and that's why we need to bring reality back to the surface and present it to the American public for the gorgeous feast and dessert that it is because reality is just truth and we say we follow and serve the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is the divine logos of the universe. He himself decides what is objectively true or not and makes human beings in his image and his likeness to bear his image and to, and to share his message with the world. But so much of the issues that we're seeing in our country right now go back to the refusal to engage on life. And so when we allow these types of rotten premises into the culture, that unborn humans are not really humans, they're not persons, we can kill them. We see how this infects and destroys and rots the rest of our politics. I mean, Roe versus Wade and abortion has really destroyed the nature of American politics. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when we allow something as strange, nasty, and bigoted as the belief that not all humans are persons and that we can kill the humans that we define as non-persons, oh wait, didn't Dred Scott do the same thing? Yes. That we'll also see other types of upside down inverted nature of our politics, such is shouting at men who don't even have a legal right to contend for the life of their biological child in their wife, girlfriend's, or fling's womb. So I don't know if you guys know this. Men have zero legal rights to contend for, speak up for, or stop the murder of their own child. He could be married to the child's mother. I mean, this could be a marriage. And if that wife decides, I don't want another baby, the father, the legal guardian, and the actual spouse of the woman pregnant can do nothing in American legal system to stop the dismemberment or poisoning of that child through an abortion pill. Zero rights. And, and men have sued before to try to retain what we would obviously say are constitutional natural rights to your own child and they're shot down by the courts every time. So by allowing this rotten, rotten premise that not all humans are persons into our political system, into our polity, it's destroyed everything else. I give you hundreds of other examples, but that's just one, since that's what you asked. Men have zero rights to save the lives of their own children. But yeah, I don't have a uterus, I was just being silly. But for people who tell me to shut up because I'm not a woman, I just gently insinuate that they're a sexist. Can you imagine if I told a woke 19-year-old purple-haired feminist at UC Berkeley in lesbian dance theory, <laughs> that she didn't have the right to speak out against 40-year-old men raping 8-year-old boys, because that's a boy issue. How dare you tell men and boys what they can or cannot do? That's a male issue. You know, it's, it's a man, and it's a boy, and it's a boy, and there's no girls involved, so shut up! Right? That's his bodily autonomy rights. Now, we all think that that's disgusting and perverted, and of course I don't mean that, it's a thought experiment, right? But according to their same logic, if I have to shut up on abortion because I'm not a woman, then you have to shut up and can't oppose men raping eight-year-old boys because that's a boy issue. Now, I don't actually believe that and, that, and guess what? She should label me a sexist, and rightly so, if I said that. 
but it's not sexism to tell men to shut up on abortion, to reduce my entire philosophy, my entire theology, all of my thoughts on probably the most contentious issue in American politics for the last 50 years, abortion, that I have no right to express myself. Why? Because I have male genitalia? Can you think of something more sexist? To reduce someone to their genitalia and say, therefore, shut up. If we did that to woke feminists, oh my gosh, they would have a field day. They would be calling for my lynching. But when they do it to me, it's just speaking truth to power? No, I don't think so. Secondly, abortion is not a woman's issue. It's not a male issue. It's actually just a human issue. Why? Because half of the babies killed in abortion are biologically male. So I actually have a very vested biological interest in speaking up for them because they're not women. So they're using the euphemism of women's rights, ironically, Pastor Tim, to justify the slaughter of 500,000 women every year. So much for feminism, right. so much for women's rights. And this is why I say that you've never met a pro-choice feminist. Shocker. Did you hear that? You've never met a pro-choice feminist. Why? Because feminism says at its most basic level, I'm talking about first wave feminism. No one has a problem with first wave feminism. It just says equal rights before the law. <laughs> like, right. okay, duh. Let's yeah, say that's why I was making the differentiation between that's that right. and modern feminism. That's right. Yeah. Everyone in this room, if you don't know what first wave feminism is, if I explained it to you, you'd say, amen, brother. I mean, just equality before the law. It's second and third wave feminism that gets nasty. So let's start with the most basic form of feminism. Women are equal. Women are intrinsically valuable and have dignity because they're human beings. The theological answer, of course, is because they're created in the image of God. But to a secular culture, you don't have to go that way. You can just say they're humans and they have human rights. And those human rights are not dependent on your gender. They're dependent on your nature, a human nature that began at the moment of conception when you became human. So if women have rights because they're human beings, then they have rights from the moment they're human beings. And when do women become women? And when did we become men? The moment of conception, the moment we had a human nature. Your human nature doesn't fall on you like a snowflake at some point in the womb. You have it from the moment you become human. So the irony of pro-choice feminism, you guys, leads to this insane statement. You'd be forced to say that, <laughs> that unborn women had a right to an abortion, but they didn't have a right to life. <laughs> Let me say that again. According to feminist theory, unborn women as fetuses have a natural right to abortion, but they don't have a natural right to life, which is insane because how could human rights exist where the right to life doesn't? They call abortion a human right. So that human right pre-exists the right to life from which all other rights flow. I'm really confused. Yes, because you chose to go to UC Berkeley. Leave and go somewhere else. And so again, reality tends to be self-evident. We have to bring those ideas to the surface. So that's a very long-winded answer to say that it's a sexist attack against men to tell us to shut up. Half of the babies killed are pre-born men, so it's not a woman's issue. And men are created to be protectors and defenders. And for you know, the people who are tuned into this who are you know, sort of progressive Christians, they probably don't watch us, right? But no. you know, who are pissed off by that, it's just a biological reality. Like a, a, a woman of your same age or of my same age probably is not as strong as us generally speaking. I mean, God makes men stronger. There's a reason for that. There's a purpose for that. We're created to be defenders and protectors. And nowhere is that more true today than on the genocide of a million baby image bearers every year. Right. Amen. You brought up, uh, you brought up something important. We do have, like I said, we have a lot of youth in here today. Um, many of them may have plans to go to college. Uh, you said, you know, don't go to Berkeley, go somewhere else. Well, where is the somewhere else that isn't continuing in this indoctrination of 
pre, you know, of, of pro-choice, yeah. of, you know, all this stuff that we're talking about, because the way I've seen it in all the different universities that I've come across are very much ingrained in this, even some of the the Christian universities. Not even and I know some, you, most. You ha- yeah, most. I mean, uh, we've got some even in our in our area here that, that are claiming to be Christian, but um, the, they've got professors that argue with me. I mean, we've got professors of some of the local Christian universities. I've had a block on, on social media because they we're getting so nasty. Wow. Um, so you have experience in that. What, what's your experience? Where could people go where they're not going to get this yeah. type of indoctrination? Well, I, I went to one of the most progressively left Christian colleges in the country, and I didn't know that when I enrolled. I remember, I was homeschooled, then I went to public high school. I was just a naive 19-year-old Christian kid who thought that, that all Christians were pro-life. In my naivete, I, I never thought that, that there were, were Christians out there who would try to conflate pro-choice ideology with Christianity. And See, I'm, wrong I'm gonna, was I. I'm going to say... <laughs> There aren't Christians that would do that. They're not Christians. They fly the banner of Christianity, but they're not Christians. We'll add a a caveat, just gracious and fair-minded. I I do believe that you can hold a pro-choice position and be born again, but you can't hold that position forever. Because many people who meet Jesus are coming from an entirely secular background who have been being discipled in an alternative religion, the religion of secular progressivism. And so this is the idea of discipleship. Once we get saved, it's not like you have everything figured out. You're supposed to be discipled and led towards the foot of the cross and understanding that being priests of full counsel of God, which is is why I'm so grateful for how you do that so well. And so as the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin, you have to abandon that pro-choice position, just like you would have to abandon other bad anti-Christian ideas. So they're not a prerequisite to salvation, but in discipleship, in, 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 in walking with Jesus, those have to be abandoned. They have to be abandoned, and you, you can't hang on to the... And I, I get what you're saying. Essentially, what you're saying is you become a Christian. You may have been pro-choice. You become a Christian, and after a while, God convicts you, and you go, okay, I can't hold that position anymore. But when you rise to a position of Christian leadership, now you're, you're a Christian professor at a Christian university. And you're defending it. You're a Christian it. pastor yeah. at a church, and you're defending it. You're yeah. not a Christian yeah, pastor. Exactly. You're not a Christian That's professor. Right. You're flying the banner of Christianity, and what you are is a heretic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A wolf in sheep's clothing. A wolf in That's sheep's right. clothing. That's right. right. Because if you, if you take that, that woke, allegedly progressive Christian position to its logical conclusion, you want to know what that logical conclusion is? Mary had a fundamental right to abort God. That's the theological endpoint of that position. If you say that, praise God, I love you, Jesus. I love the embryo God. It's Christmas time incarnation. And also, praise God for abortion. Shout your abortion. It's like, well, then what you're saying is that Mary had a natural right to abort the creator of the universe in her womb. And if you believe that, then you're not, you're not espousing Christianity. You're espousing a different religion. Right. And that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call a cheap grace. Um, which is essentially you've made a Christ in your own image. It's not the grace of the cross. So we do need to be able to articulate and say that. We need to put that dividing line in the sand, saying that's not Christianity, bro. But I went to Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. And their motto on their emblem says, Christus Prumatum Tenens, which means Christ preeminent in all things. Amen, right? Christ preeminent in all things. Lordship over it all. Everything you see is through a Christian worldview and through what was done on the cross and how that trickles down into how we view the political and social issues of the day. Praise God. Yeah, except they hire pro-abortion professors. And I could give you the names of current teaching professors at Westmont College who I have had email 
debates and conversations with, I have all of them on my phone, I've recorded all of them, I'll write a book one day about it, um, who were defending the pro-choice position to me in an email, and they signed a statement of faith to teach at Westmont College. So what happens when we send our children to be educated by Caesar? Well, they come back as Romans. That's what happens. Right. You're sending them into the arms of an alternative religion. I don't know why you're surprised that they came back hating God. Or coming back as progressive Christians, which means you still hate God because you don't really like the laws and ideas that he's told you to live by. <laughs> right. And so that's what I encountered. I started the first and only pro-life club at Westmont College as a freshman. I was denied the right as a student club president to bring graphic imagery of abortion on campus for three years in a row. By the way, we put up big warning signs that says warning graphic abortion imagery ahead. We sent out an all-student email. We let people know if they want to avoid it. You know, um, we don't shove it in their face or whatever. But they said no to me three years in a row. So I ended up standing outside the dining commons I know, a little, a little gruesome, on Westmont College campus holding small signs of abortion. And two of the senior ranking staff came out and said, did you get the permission to do this? I said, no. He said, well, then we're going to have to ask you to stop. And I said, read your student handbook. And so basically, I didn't ask my club to stand with me, so I wasn't breaking any rules. And after two hours of debate, they were like, shoot, you're right. So what did Westmont College do? Rather than dealing with the fact that my alma mater doesn't take a pro-life position, anywhere in their community life statement or standards, they created a new rule the next year to make sure that I can never do that again. So when Christian colleges be begin functioning as court jesters in the culture of death, we have deep, deep problems. Because now you're not even educating students into the Judeo-Christian worldview, into the gospel. You're educating them into some entirely different religion. And so for those of you contemplating going to college, I, I wouldn't even go to these colleges. It's not worth the money. I mean, it's like 50 grand a year. Um, and so, I mean, some are less, but these Christian colleges are very expensive. Most of them I would not send my kids to. Secondly, what I'll say is that you don't need to go to these colleges to get a good education. There are just phenomenal resources available right now. You can get tons of Hillsdale courses, like free or, or ridiculously cheap, which I would contend is one of the best Christian colleges or education institutions in the entire country. Um, you can also learn under your pastors or under your youth leaders, assuming that they're well-read and that they're watchmen for our times. I could give you a list of books, as could Pastor Tim. And if you read through those in two years and you're taking notes and you're learning, you'll be more educated than most of these professors who are progressive Christian educators at Christian colleges. And so I've always believed that it should be the church and the local pastors who are the primary educators and disciplers of the next generation. I, I don't have necessarily anything against Christian colleges in general. I, I, I don't think we should like shut them all down. I just think that the church should be the ones doing the primary formation and discipleship, not other individuals who you don't know, who don't have a vested interest in your family's future, who might not even be Christian. Right, right. Um, so you started an organization, Life Training Institute. I, I'm the West Coast director. Okay, right? West, yeah, West Coast yeah, yeah. director. So tell us about that, what that is, what you guys do. Yeah, we're like a mini yeah. pro-life think tank. So I think we have like uh, some, some of the most elite pro-life speakers in the country. We're a small but elite team of speakers. I'm the only one on the West Coast. So I've got my, my work cut out for me. I mean, Washington, Oregon, California, some of the most dangerous states to find yourself in a womb. <laughs> and Oregon, by the way, was, I believe, the first state to legalize abortion. Um, before 1973, right, when it was illegal at the federal level, but states were legalizing it. Oregon has always been on the breaking edge of the culture of death. 
Um, and, and that's increasingly true on the issue of abortion. So I'm the West Coast director, but I speak all across the country. And so we go into secular colleges, Protestant and Catholic high schools, youth groups, churches, pro-life pregnancy center banquets, conferences, and I do public debates on university campuses as well. And our goal is to equip and train and disciple the next generation of Christian leaders and pro-life individuals to make a gracious, persuasive defense for the pre-born, to be an ambassador for the unborn, to speak up for them, and to give them the confidence and tools to do so. But my heart is increasingly for the church. That's where I want to be as much as I can. I love the lion's den. I love going into secular university campuses. But if the church decided to end abortion, we could in a matter of years, and we could bankrupt the abortion industry in a matter of years as well if we wake up, embrace a comprehensive Christianity, and say, no more killing God's children in our country. Amen. One of the things that's on your website, uh, you say during these debates that that are organized by university campus students, um, they... You demonstrate how to re, uh, how to have a reasonable, rational, and convincing dialogue, and how that can be managed at an academic level. Now, my my experience with these pro-choice people is they're very militant. They they have. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, all I could say is there is a demonic force behind them, mm-hmm. fueling their desire for abortions to take place. And when you when you try to articulate this in a reasonable, rational, and convincing dialogue in that type of manner, um, that because they're so militant, it, it, to me, at times, it's like it seems impossible. Right. So, but, but you are doing that. So how can you have that conversation with militant people? Yeah. How, how can you talk with them in a reasonable, rational, and convincing way? Yeah. I'll give you the tools and the game plan for that right now. But let, let me preface that by saying by giving you the reason for why the culture of death and pro-abortion advocates are so passionate about abortion. Have you, have you ever wondered why the left cares so much about abortion? I've, I've wondered this for years. And I, I spent a lot of time thinking about it, absorbing the writings of other phenomenal philosophers and theologians, because it was, it's, it's so disgusting and perverted how much they care about abortion. And by the way, if you want evidence or proof of this, what happened every time a Supreme Court seat opened up during Trump's presidency? They were deathly afraid that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned. Wasn't that the number one response? Of, Of all the issues that rose to the surface when a vacancy opened up on the Supreme Court, what what, what was the talking point? (gasps) They're going to overturn Roe v. Wade! I mean, it was like, whoa. Like, they worked themselves up into frenzies to defend the fictional right to abortion. During a recent case in 2020 in Louisiana that was going to require abortionists and facilities to meet the same medical safety standards as every other ambulatory surgical center in the state. In other words, it's like, okay, abortionists, if you say abortion's healthcare, shouldn't you be required to meet the same healthcare standards as every other ambulatory surgical center? Sounds like one of the most uncontroversial pieces of pro-life legislation you could ever draft, right? They freaking lost their mind, Pastor Tim. It was like, whoa. During the Supreme Court hearings on that case, you had Chuck Schumer on the steps of the Supreme Court Saying, do you remember this? Saying, oh, yeah. Kavanaugh, right? We know who you are. Right, do you remember this? He's, oh, saying, yeah. he's like, you won't know what hit you. Do you remember this? It was like, what hit you? Are you threatening violence against Supreme Court justices if they don't rule the way you want them to on abortion? Okay, my whole point is, that's how much they care 
about abortion. So before I give you sort of just the philosophical intellectual firepower to make a case for life and be a pro-life ninja flipping around demolishing abortion arguments wherever you find them, let me firstly give you the why, if you've ever wondered. Brothers and sisters, for the secular progressive movement, abortion is not just a woman's issue. For the culture of death, abortion is not just one right among many. For the secular progressive movement, abortion is a sacrament. Now, I know that sounds strange. You're thinking like, okay, this freaking weird kook, what's he talking about abortion being sacraments? Like, come on, Seth, it's a pagan movement. It's a pagan culture. How is that a religious sacrament? And just for the sake of maybe somebody here or online doesn't know what a sacrament is, um, for, for the Christian, communion is a sacrament, okay? When we come together, we break the bread, we have the cup, we eat the bread, we drink the cup, we are doing a sacrament in that, that we're, we're, that's a, an element of our religion that we are putting into practice to remember what Christ did. So that's, that is one of our sacraments, okay? Baptism. So just so that we understand what he's, yep. you know, just in case nobody Baptism knew Baptism is a sacrament for, right. for Catholics. Marriage is a sacrament. Um, a position that Protestants ought to be reminded of. I think Protestants need to start treating marriage as a sacrament as well because we've, I mean, obviously you guys know the statistics, right? It's really bad. Uh, Christians need to be leading the, the charge on these issues because it's a pointer to the divine, right? Marriage represents the union of Christ and his church. The, the bread and the wine represent the broken body and shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Okay, so, so beautiful description, Pastor Tim. Thank you. For the secular progressive movement, abortion is their sacrament. And you're thinking, okay, Seth, that's freaking weird. Abortion says, you must die so I can live. Christ says, I must die so you can live. I'm dying, I raised from death so you can too. The God man who enters human history in a womb predicts and pulls off his own resurrection for the remission of sins and entrance into the gates of glory and eternal life with Christ himself. Peter Kraft once put this more perfectly than I ever could. Catholic philosopher, and he said that abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words. This is my body, but with the opposite blasphemous meaning. Did you hear that? So Christ says, this is my body broken for you, take and eat in remembrance of the King of Kings. The culture of death says the same words, brothers and sisters. This is my body, and I'll kill whatever's inside of it, because I'm my own God. Which goes right back to Genesis 3, right back to the serpent, right back to the garden, right back to the first lie. For God doth know that in the day ye eat of that fruit, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods. That's a fascinating lie, by the way, that you could be like a god. I want to be like a god. I want to live forever. A God gets to live forever. That's what makes a God a God. They're eternal. But a God also gets to decide who lives and who dies. And brothers and sisters, this is nothing new. Pagan cultures and societies have always participated in human sacrifice to pagan deities, to the war gods, the crop gods, the sex gods, the weather gods, believing that the sacrifice of a human, be they an infant, a child, or an adult, would satiate their pagan deity, and they would receive a blessing in return to either improve or extend their own lives. But brothers and sisters, Satan doesn't care the name of the God that you call him. Yahweh means one God, so that means any other God is not a God. 
It's Satan masquerading as an angel of light or masquerading as a little bronze dude. So Satan doesn't care what you call him. He was happy to go by the name of mm, Molech in the Old Testament as the Israelites were sacrificing their babies to Canaanite gods. He was fine if you called him Molech. He didn't need to be called Lord of Flies. He's also fine to be called self. Education, money, family, and career well-being. The very reasons we're told we have to sacrifice babies. As long as you continue to shove children down his throat, he'll be satisfied. So today, we sacrifice babies to those pagan deities in order to receive a blessing in the improvement or extending of our own lives. So if your organs are dying and you need some, just take some from the babies. They got some. Ever heard of fetal organ harvesting, fetal tissue harvesting? Well, it's just embryonic stem cell research. We're just killing the baby in the womb to get their stem cells. Why do we need those embryonic stem cells? Well, the culture of death tells us we need those to test for drugs to get rid of diseases. Why? So we can live forever because the serpent's telling me I shall be as gods and a God gets to live forever. So if you've ever wondered why the secular progressive movement cares so much every time pro-lifers threaten the right to abortion, it's because it's a sacrament. So there are spiritual principalities, yeah? We don't just contend in the political sphere. We don't just contend in the cultural sphere. These are spiritual issues that work themselves out through the cultural and political sphere. So we have to contend in that spiritual way as well. And then we can talk about how do you actually defend your pro-life beliefs, but that's why they care so much if you've ever wondered. So we need to be praying against that. We need to be raising up churches and Christian leaders who understand that we are warring against demons and Satan himself, who has always been behind the killing of babies. He's the dragon in Revelation waiting for Mary to give birth so he can eat Christ. He is behind the killing of babies by Herod in Bethlehem and by Pharaoh in Egypt. He's always been behind the killing of babies. And it's his favorite dinner. I want to show a, a quick picture real quick because you talked about the killing of babies. Um, you talked about the, the stem cells. The, there's another thing that's very current, very important for us to understand, especially when it comes to the area of vaccines um, or mRNA therapies, which they're calling the COVID vaccine. So take a look at this picture. It's my son. Um, this is my son 25 years ago. Um, if, if you can't tell, that's my wedding ring around his hand. And that is my son back there now. Wave your hand, son. That's my son, Jacob. Um, when he was born, uh, he, you know, he was a pound and a half, little teeny tiny guy. Um, they told us all the reasons we should abort him and why, why, you know, we were young parents and we were, we were young parents, but we were, we were old, you know, we were old enough to be parents, you know, but we were young. Um, when, when my wife and I got married, she was 19, I was 20. Huh. And they told us all the reasons why we should just go ahead and let him, let him die. And, you know, we could just, you know, have, have more kids later. And I said, no way, I, I'm not going to do that. That's my son. And he, he's valued and he's created in the image of God and you're not, I'm not killing him. Praise God. And so we, we, it was weird, like you said, in the same hospital, well, they'll abort in one part of the hospital or put them in a NICU in the other part of the hospital. And that was how it was. Like, well, we can take them over here and just do away with it or we'll, we'll go ahead and do this, but you guys are in for a long haul. He's going to have all sorts of issues. Now he's 25 years old, an Air Force veteran, been to war, married, has a kid on the way, finishing up seminary right now. I mean, what a waste if I would have just said, yeah, go ahead, go ahead and, go ahead and, you know, just let him die. But 
babies at this age are being aborted. Mm-hmm. And, and this, what he's going to, we're not going to show you pictures, but what he's going to say is pretty graphic. And so explain to us what's happening to babies this age and how that's related to the, right. to the modern, what they're calling vaccinations. Yeah, yeah. So firstly, it is legal to kill a baby through all nine months of pregnancy in the United States of America for any reason or no reason at all. Now, I've told that to churches before, and I've actually had some like, pastors and Christians call me a liar and say that that's not true. So um, let me just briefly break that down, and then I'll, I'll get to the, really the grisly type of like, Nazi-like medical experiments being done on little recently murdered babies. But um, the Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade and its companion case, Doe versus Bolton, which most people don't know about in 1973, those two cases go together. And they actually said that abortion could never be regulated or banned at the state level in the first trimester. It could maybe be regulated or banned at the state level in the second trimester if the baby hit the subjective definition of viability, which means can you survive outside the womb? Well, guess what? Viability changes every few years because we come up with new medical technology to save prematurely born babies at earlier and earlier stages. By the way, a couple weeks ago, a baby just celebrated his first birthday and is the Guinness World Record holder. It's kind of a strange record to hold, but for being the, the earliest prematurely baby, baby born to have, and, and to have survived. That baby just had his one-year-old birthday. He was born at 21 weeks and two days. Wow. Which basically cuts gestation in half. 40 weeks being full gestation, and and that baby is perfectly and flawlessly fine. He's still on a little bit of oxygen for breathing, but he should be just fine. I mean, that's about three weeks younger than your son was born, um, showing that we can save these babies when we try to. So the Supreme Court said, okay, I guess guess you states can ban or regulate abortions in the second trimester, which is the fourth, fifth, and sixth month, if like the baby is viable, but then that changes every few weeks. And you read these horror stories in pro-life journals or medical journals of doctors who are refusing to care for a preemie who is born alive while the mothers and fathers are screaming for them to try to save their baby. Why? Because that baby doesn't meet the age requirement of the doctor's understanding of viability. Uh, I mean, these people should be thrown in the clink and never see the light of day again for allowing these children to die. And then in the third trimester, the Supreme Court said that states could ban abortion in the third trimester. It's a super minority of abortions, but when you kill a million babies a year, small percentages still represent very large numbers. So it's still thousands and thousands of babies being killed every year in the second and third trimester, which literally involves ripping the limbs off with forceps, piece by piece. And then you rearrange them on the table which you actually do at all points of the gestation to make sure that there's no floating dead baby pieces in mom's uterus, making her susceptible to sepsis and death. So really grisly, nasty stuff. So anyways, they then said that um, states could ban abortion in the third trimester unless a failure to get that third trimester abortion endangered the life or health of the mother. So they said you couldn't ban an abortion in the third trimester if she needed it for her life or health. Well, health, I mean, pregnancy always affects a woman's health, right? It's just a matter of how badly. Some women feel euphoric and they have the pregnancy glow, right? And my wife flips those wives off, right? Yeah. She gets really but, sick yeah, and she's my like, wife, I hate you forever, yeah, right? right. Um, and then <laughs> and some women get super sick. So uh, pregnancy always affects a woman's health. It's just a matter of degree. So what did the courts mean by saying that a woman could get a third trimester abortion if it endangered her health? if the pregnancy endangered her health. Well, they didn't define the word health, yes, Tim. They later subjective. had to clarify, they later had to right. clarify in a different c- case what health meant, and here's how they defined health. To include physical, financial, familial, and the woman's age. 
Physical, financial. financial, and familial. What the heck does that mean? Right. So they defined health so broadly you could drive a Mack truck through it. And guess who gets to decide if the pregnant woman's definition of health is an acceptable one to meet the standard of a third trimester abortion? The abortionist, the very physician who has a financial incentive to accept any definition of health because third trimester abortions are the most expensive and he's going to make some darn good blood money dismembering that third trimester baby who could have survived outside the womb in a NICU unit weeks before that stage. So that's how third trimester babies are still killed even in pro-life states that have bans against third trimester abortions by the health loophole, okay? So it's legal through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all, and you fund it. And the Biden administration is sending many, many, many more millions to the abortion industry, both here and overseas. Okay, well, what are they doing after some of these babies are killed? Well, it's kind of useful, you know, harvest their organs, use them to test vaccines, extend our own lives because we want to live forever because the serpent's telling me I shall be as gods. Oh, it's almost like it's an alternative religion. Yes. So when pastors say, I don't preach against politics, I say, do you preach against false religion? Can you preach against the false religion of secular progressivism, which slaps the word politics on it because the culture of death knows how afraid pastors are of being accused of being political? Hmm. Yes, it is an alternative religion. So after they kill the babies, brothers and sisters, they poke and prod them and perform experiments to extend their own lives. One of them is happening right now at the University of Pittsburgh. And you want to know who has funded some of these grisly medical experiments? Frankenstein Fauci, the high priest of secular progressivism, who is the highest paid government official, even more than the president. I believe he makes 400 grand a year. Now, we don't have time to get into the changing sort of standards and... Uh, contradictory positions that that high priest of an alternative religion has held. But he is incredibly pro-abortion, which immediately undermines any type of case he wants to make for being pro-science. What's that phrase he said? Uh, oh, follow the science. Yeah, well, if you follow the science in Fauci's brain, it leads to not all humans are persons, and we can murder pre-born children through point of birth because I've decided they're not persons. But don't worry, it's just science. Yeah, something tells me your science is just bigotry masquerading as science so that we'll shut up and be silent about it. So Fauci has funded some of these things at the University of Pittsburgh where they kill the baby in an abortion on campus, on the, the, the campus's hospital, right? Then they put that dead baby on fresh ice to keep it as fresh as possible. We're talking, by the way, between 21 and 24-week babies. 21 weeks and two days earliest baby, your son 24 weeks. Babies who could have survived outside the womb if cared for are being scalped like like old school Indians, like they're scalping them after the baby's aborted, and they're, they're grafting that human infant scalp onto lab rats so that the rat will grow infant human hair. So now that the rat has human cells in it, right, you can now test it for staph infections or developing vaccines to see how human cell and hair tissue responds to this before we roll it out for the American public. Now, all of the vaccines, okay? Good thing we're not streaming on YouTube, right? Or oh, I guess we are. We are. We'll, we'll, Maybe good. not tomorrow. That live stream just yeah. got pulled. <laughs> um, <laughs> which we know with oh, James Cadiz and yeah. Rob McCoy, my pastor, these yeah. things get pulled all the time. Yeah. All of the um, vaccines right now, all of them were produced or tested, okay? Produced or tested with aborted cell lines or that type of grisly research where you're, you're scalping recently murdered children within minutes and, and creating humanized mice to see how they respond to drugs before we roll them out on humans. Every single COVID vaccine was produced or tested in one of those ways. 
and Fauci, who really is the high priest of the religion of secular progressivism, has funded this for a long time. And then this last week, Pro-Life San Francisco, yes, there is a group called that, just exposed through a Freedom of Information Act, UCFS, University of California, San Francisco, which is the abortion training capital of America. It's where all third trimester abortionists get trained. Okay. Exposed them for harvesting the genitals of recently murdered late-term babies for scientific research. Why do we do all this? Because we're gods. And a god gets to decide who lives and who dies. A god gets to create human beings explicitly to kill them, to poke them and prod them, to experiment on them so that we can try to obtain what every god is entitled to, which is to live forever. And by the way, you can go Google all of this tonight. LifeSite News, Live Action News. I'm sure National Review has a piece on it. Either pro-life or conservative sources, you'll find all of this stuff from UCSF this last week and from University of Pittsburgh. Alexandra DeSanctis of National Review has a good piece on it. All of this is out there. We have all of the information, all of the documentation proving all this. But don't worry, we're not supposed to be political, right? Right. Yeah, if, yeah, that's the I thing couldn't vote for Trump because of my witness. You know, I, right. I just cared so much about my witness that yeah. I had to vote for Biden because that's what real pro-lifers do. Or at least that's what woke pastors told me. Yeah. Yeah, this is the lie that, that's being taught. I mean, we have to, to understand this. Um, I want to make sure that, that our youth understands this, that you are a target to them. They, they are wanting you to go through this abortion process. They, they, they want to do everything they can to get you to avoid anybody who would tell you that abortion is wrong. Now here, parents and grandparents, I want you to, to know this. That, that, and I've, I've talked about this before. Every single week, I get a message from Teen Source. Every single week. If you haven't done so, go in and register your phone number to get the weekly text. You're going to have to lie and say that you're a kid. Seriously, they, they, they ask you a bunch of questions, and, and multiple times they want to ask, are you, a, you know, under this age? Because they want to make sure that it's not people like me. And so I lied, and I'm, you know, I'm a 13-year-old boy again. You know, um, so I, I got on there and every week they give me an update. It just so happens that today, because every Wednesday is when the days, the, the things come out today, what, what they said was you may be experiencing an unwanted pregnancy and they go through all these things, these options that you have. Now, the, the thing that I found experience, experiencing, experiencing an unwanted pregnancy, right, yeah. right. So here's some of your options. Now, um, one of the warnings they give to our teenagers is this, and, and I, I want to just read you the exact quote. This is going out to our teenagers. Teen Source, by the way, is something, it's a resource that schools, public schools, are giving to our kids, okay? This is today. Watch out for crisis pregnancy centers. These centers often advertise on highway billboards or online offering that they will help you if you're pregnant, but are not real medical providers. Their goal is usually to stop people from getting abortions. Find out how more crisis pregnancy centers, or find out more about uh, crisis pregnancy centers, what they do and don't do, and how to avoid them. Then click here, and it takes you to a whole thing on how to avoid a place that's going to tell you you shouldn't get an abortion. They're giving these instructions to our kids. Watch out for anybody that's going to tell you not to go through with it. Anybody that would love you enough and love that child enough to say what you're doing is going to damage you forever. That's right. For the rest of your life here on earth. That's right. It's going to damage you. That's right. 
They don't want, they want you to find out how to avoid anybody like that. Yep. So secular progressivism is an alternative religion. Their greatest sacrament is abortion, which is human sacrifice. So it's a religion that has a sacrament. Guess what? They also have a liturgy. Now, I did some research on the word liturgy recently. Liturgy initially originally meant public work. Oh, like working out your faith in the public square to advance righteousness and restrain evil and seek the good of the city that you've been exiled in for God's glory. Oh, shocker. Yes, that was the original understanding of liturgy. We've really accepted a watered-down definition of liturgy in the church. When we use that word, people kind of think of like corporate singing, right, or drinking lattes together after church. It's my liturgy. <laughs> and the left has developed a far more spiritually and politically robust understanding of liturgy. They work out their strange religious precepts through public engagement to build the wall, build the city, and convert the children of this state and country to the religion of secular progressivism. So this type of targeting of children or comprehensive sexuality education, which is a sales funnel for the culture of death to sell abortions and sexualize young children, all this stuff is that religion's liturgy. Do you understand that? This is not an alternative politics. This is an alternative religion that masquerades as politics because they know how much Christians are afraid of being called political hacks. If being a political hack means standing against the genocide of abortion and the culture of death that chops off eight-year-olds' genitalia because they played with a Sally doll once, then yes, I'm a political hack. Call me that. I'm going to seek righteousness, restrain evil, and leave the results to God. Amen. And it's high time that the church stand against this stuff and begin advocating for life and righteousness. Amen. We are just about out of time. Um, what, what final encouragement? You've given people a lot of encouragement tonight. I mean, this is a dark subject, really a hard one to, to talk about because it is so grotesque, but you've been very encouraging in that. Leave us with some final words of encouragement. Okay, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me get on the soapbox one more time. Send you guys out with broken hearts and boiling blood such that you could never accept apathy again, that apathy would be the most disgusting pill in your mouth, that apathy to you would be as inexcusable as actually being an abortionist. That's what I want to leave you with, being that uncomfortable. Amen, yeah? Now, <laughs> if you want to know how you would have lived if you jumped in a time machine with Marty McFly and went back to 1939 Germany where they were genociding Jews, if you've ever wondered how you would have lived, if you found yourself in 1850s America during chattel slavery while the Democratic Party said that was, that was, um, that was just plantation care, that was just economic rights, the euphemisms of that Democratic Party, which believes the same thing that today's Democratic Party believes, namely, not all humans are persons, right? Now, we would never separate those terms. We would use them interchangeably, probably, right? Human, person, person, human. Like, are, does that mean the same thing? Hey, Tim's a person, he's a human, he's my brother. For the left, they separate those terms. And the practitioners of genocide, historically, have always separated the term human from person. So the left, if you push them on abortion today, by the way, guess what? You can usually get them to admit that the unborn is a human. Very rarely does the pro-abortion movement today still make the argument that the unborn is not biologically human. They say, yeah, it's a human, but it's not a person. And so I get to create the litmus test that you have to pass to be a person. And usually it's self-awareness, right, or desires or consciousness or viability, these ridiculous things that come in varying degrees um, and that we all experienced in the womb. And they use those to deperson the unborn. Just like the Hiskerich, the German Supreme Court, declared Jews non-persons. And the United States Supreme Court in Dred versus Scott declared blacks non-persons, but merely the property of their plantation owners. And now they say that babies are the property of their mothers. Um, but where one is has no bearing on who one is. So if you've ever wondered how you would have lived in one of those time frames, let me suggest to you something right now. 
It's whatever you're doing on the issue of abortion today. And that's a hard word, huh? And if you feel offended by that, feel free to come up to me later and tell me that. However you engage abortion today is the same extent that you would have lived and engaged the Holocaust and slavery in America in 1850 and in Germany in 1940. Why? Because culture is to us what water is to a fish. It's what we swim in. It's all we know. And so for too long, the American church and Christian lay people have been more influenced by the liturgy and the culture of death than by our own Christian worldview, than by our own scriptures. So that's why you get woke pro-life pastors like Andy Stanley and Brian Broderson and Tim Keller who say they're pro-life. And yet Tim Keller put a Facebook post up in September right before the election saying, quote, you have liberty of conscience to vote however you want. As we had Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, the most radical pro-abortion political ticket in American history up for a vote. And he said, quote, you have liberty of conscience, meaning freedom to vote however you want. God doesn't care about your vote. Now, my only question for you, Tim Keller, is would you have said that regarding slavery in 1850? Probably. We all know he wouldn't. We all, well, yeah, because he's influenced by culture, but with his moral clarity today, right? right, right. This is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We find ourselves in 2021, I wouldn't have been a racist in 1850. I, I probably would have been best friends with Frederick Douglass going on <laughs> preaching tours in churches, trying to wake up the church to end slavery. I would have been Dietrich Bonhoeffer's best friend in Germany before he was assassinated for trying to assassinate Adolf Hitler because I would have stood against the German culture of death. Yeah, easy, easy to say today with all your moral clarity and cultural consciousness that's been developed over the last few decades. Easy to say today, but you don't engage abortion in the same way because you've been more influenced by the culture of death liturgy than by your own face liturgy and by your own scriptures. So that is why whatever you do on abortion today is how you would have lived during the Holocaust or slavery. So if that disturbs you, if you want to wake up, if you want to be able to stand before Christ and say, I did everything I could to end the genocide of your babies, then here's a game plan. Stand outside today's death camps. People always ask me, what do we do, Seth? What steps do you have for us? And it's so simple, right? We're like, oh yeah. They kill babies at abortion centers. Southern California has dozens and dozens and dozens of abortion clinics just between Santa Barbara and San Diego and the Inland Empires. I mean, dozens. It's one of the most dangerous areas to be a preborn human in the United States of America. Where's the church? Well, we're the Levite and the priest. How many pastors and Christians, how many of us drive by on the other side of the road, past death camps on our way to work or on our way to church? Many of us do. So that's all. You show up. And did you know that 40 Days for Life who does sidewalk counseling and praying outside of abortion clinics have found that during their 40 week or 40 day, they just moved to th every day of the year, 40 day prayer campaigns, when abortionists and abortion workers would leave the industry and meet Jesus and become pro-life, they have told 40 days for life over and over and over again when these abortion workers convert that, hey, Christians, hey, I just want to tell you now that I'm a Christian and I left the abortion industry, just want to tell you, during the days that you pesky Christians were out there praying, we would see a 75% no-show for abortion appointments on the days that Christians were out there praying. That's coming from the abortion workers who saw all the canceled appointments and were saying like, ah, shoot, lost a bunch of money today because an eternal soul wasn't ripped limb from limb because the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, was outside of those death camps with a comprehensive Christianity saying, I was a former fetus. My Christ was a former fetus. 
And the story of the gospel is that we have an advocate, one who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. So if Christ spoke up for us when we were utterly incapable of doing so, how could we not speak up for preborn children who were literally unable to speak up for themselves? You see, the gospel is at the very heart of pro-life resistance to the culture of death. Love as I have loved you. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves because you couldn't speak up for yourself, but Christ was an advocate. What's an advocate? Someone who speaks up for someone else. There is no more of a voiceless victim class in the world than preborn children who are killed at the tune of 50 million a year worldwide and a million a year in America alone. We have killed over 63 million children since 1973 in the United States of America, the most phenomenal government to have ever been founded in the face of the earth with the natural rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If our government is going to ignore the natural right to life of an entire class of human beings, we cannot trust that government to protect any other right that flows from that first and most important of all rights. So yes, you should engage to end abortion for unselfish reasons because you have been bought and paid for by the creator of the universe who entered human history as a zygote and an embryo, but you should also seek to end abortion for selfish reasons. Because if you want to maintain your rights to liberty and your children's right to liberty to live in this country freely, then you have to end abortion for selfish reasons. Because a government that ignores the natural right to life, which is the foundational building block of the entire republic, by ignoring that right to life, how you expect them to protect your right to liberty and property? If they could kill you, why would they protect your natural rights that flow from your right to life? So you should want to end abortion for selfish and unselfish reasons. So go to www.lovelife.org, lovelife.org forward slash America. I'm an ambassador for this organization because they're raising up Christian leaders, church partners, and sidewalk counselors outside of every abortion center in the country every day offering the hope of the gospel and the help of the local church. And yet two thirds of abortion centers in America are void of a Christian witness every day. Two-thirds of abortion centers in America don't have Christians outside while their little neighbors are being ripped limb from limb. And when we show up outside of these death camps, God does miracles. And through God's providence and my relationship with Calvary Chapel Chino Hills, we have now sent upwards of 20 Calvary Chapel Chino Hills members to Charlotte, North Carolina, the Love Life headquarters hub to get trained in a four-day training and fly back to be full-time, to raise funds, to do this full-time. They are saving one to two to three babies a week in the three abortion centers within a one-hour radius of Calvary Chapel Chino Hills. All three of those abortion centers didn't have Christians outside every day back in October. Now they have Christians outside every day. What would happen if the Church of Christ in America rose up and put Christians outside every death camp in America every day they're open for every hour that they're open? We would bankrupt the abortion industry in a matter of years and the politics would soon follow. Politics are important because politics is the art of the possible. It's how you debate and discuss how you want to live together. But listen, you don't wait for the politics to save children. You engage at the cultural and local level together as the bride of Christ so that we can prove Francis Schaeffer wrong when he said every abortion center ought to have a sign out front that says open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. And towards the end of his life, he said that if the church can't speak out against something as evil as killing a baby, then the world has the right to ask whether Christ is real. 
and we were told by woke pastors that we should be apolitical and we should disengage from the political sphere because, Tim, if we became political activists, then we'd be compromising our witness. You know what compromises our Christian witness? Allowing genocide compromises our Christian witness. And if we have to get political to end a genocide, praise God. For John Quincy Adams was once asked if he could ever turn slavery around, and he simply said, duty is ours and results are God's. Amen. Amen. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Pastor Tim Thompson of 412 Church Murrieta and myself. Uh, for more of this and to support the show, help us reach more people with these types of ideas um, as abortion has become more and more dangerous for the preborn, as more and more children are killed, and as seemingly more and more Americans are apathetic towards this genocide, then consider becoming a patron of the show. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and pick a tier. You'll get some fun uh, perks and rewards for supporting the show, but it helps us reach more people, expand the production value of this show, increase the number of episodes, and begin creating diverse types of content in the public square to put these ideas in a conversational format. That really helps us leave the show a rating and review. It helps us reach more people as long as I can exist on these platforms. Thank you so much for tuning in. Share this episode with someone you love, and we'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.